Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. And let me ask you to join me in opening up our Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. If you're following along in a Blue Pew Bible, you can find Ezra 1 on page 389. If you have your own Bible, do not be ashamed to look in the table of contents to find Ezra. Don't leave yourself that just guessing game and hope you get lucky and land on it on the flip through the Old Testament. And because this is a book that we're going to be in for the next six weeks as we begin a new sermon series. And a question that I imagine uh, many have, but perhaps only a few would ask, is why Ezra? When you ask someone the favorite book of the Bible, my guess is even if you ask them their top ten, not sure anyone would choose Ezra unless maybe if your name was Ezra. Uh, which, as a side note, is growing in popularity. Uh, the name Ezra for a boy has appeared on the top 100 list of most popular names back in 2015, and it's moving up the ranks. 2021, it was rated the 44th most popular boy name. So, I don't know, perhaps there's an Ezra movement underway. But still the question remains, why are we preaching through Ezra? Well, I think there are first uh, just very practical reasons. Um, many of you know that our preaching rhythm here at Grace is to go through books of the Bible uh, or large portions of a particular book, and in that rhythm, uh, we just we want a balanced diet. We want to move back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We want to preach through different genres of Scripture because if, as 2 Timothy 3 says, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching— then we want to be teaching from all of Scripture. And just as a physically healthy person uh, that eats a balanced diet, and once it gets out of balance, it would start to show, right? If you choose just one food group over the other, over time, we'd all kind of start to figure that out. Um, I had a college teammate uh, who, in my freshman and sophomore year, I'm not kidding, uh, I never saw him eat anything. We shared a lot of meals together. Uh, never saw him eat anything except pizza, quesadillas, and mac and cheese, all right? Just out of his home, three major food groups, that's it, all right? And he had crazy metabolism coming into college, but we all saw before our very eyes uh, that in those college years, it started to show. In the same way, it is natural, it's okay, it can be even good to have certain books of the Bible or certain genres that you just love to read more than others, uh, ones that you just love to dive into and study. Uh, perhaps you love the epistles or the Gospels, or uh, kind of the Old Testament wisdom poetry, that there's just a certain part of the Bible that you know, you just love to dig into. And while that's okay, if you only read, say, Paul's epistles and nothing else, um, over time, you would get out of balance and it'd start to show. Others would start to know and realize that you were out of balance when it came to your biblical diet. So very practically, we want to uh, be in Ezra, because we want to move to an Old Testament book, an historical narrative book, and a time of Israel's history that we have not preached through here at Grace before, and we want a balanced diet. But also, there are theological reasons, and if I had to sum up the entire book of Ezra in one sentence, it would be this, that God works through difficult times and moments by reminding us of His promises and bringing about a renewed vision of future hope. 
that God works through difficult times and moments by reminding us of his promises and bringing about a renewed vision of future hope amongst his people. And so we're going to take six weeks to go through Ezra. Um, Ezra is 10 chapters. So if you kind of do the math there, there are going to be multiple, multiple weeks where we cover multiple chapters, including this morning. Uh, we're going to unpack chapters 1 and 2 of Ezra. And we're going to start with reading all of chapter 1, which is 11 verses, so you can follow along as I read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them and aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradeth, the tre- treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. All right, if we want to best understand what is happening and why it's happening in that chapter, I think we need to get a handle on the historical context of Ezra and how it fits into the whole story of the Bible. So we're going to do this quickly, but we kind of need to back up to get a lay of the land of the Old Testament. So there's going to be a timeline on the screen behind me that will hopefully uh, illustrate this. But if we picked up things that King David He reigned in 1000 B.C. Uh, By the way, the kids in kids' worship this morning downstairs are learning their story of King David, how he came to be king, and his defeat over Goliath, a well-known story. Uh, But he was the first king of God's choosing over Israel, and again, he reigned in 1000 B.C. David would unite the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, He'd be the one that really oversaw the conquering of the enemies in the region. He uh, expanded the borders of Israel, and he established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. His son Solomon would take the helm after him in approximately 960 B.C. Solomon would be the one to build the actual temple in the capital of Jerusalem. He would reign in a time of peace and prosperity, enjoying the fruits of his father's labor in conquering his enemies. But near the end of his reign, as king, Solomon's own unfaithfulness would become the source of the nation's eventual downfall. Solomon got lazy with his worship, and so did the nation along with him. 
he and the people of God began to allow other gods to kind of sink in, like a syncretism, like, like there's God of Israel, but then there's also some other gods, some God plus other things. And when Solomon dies in 930, his sons who hate each other begin to fight over the throne, fight over the reign of this prosperous, small but mighty nation. And so the nation starts to fight from within, and it leads to a north-south split where the ten tribes to the north retain the name Israel. The two tribes to the south become their own nation called Judah. And Israel in the north is led all the way through by wicked kings. And I'm not talking Boston wicked where wicked's a good thing, all right? This is bad wicked, right? This is just going against the word of the Lord, defying his rule and his reign. And king after king, Israel in the north never had a good king. Despite repeated warnings from God's prophets... In 722 B.C., so 200 years after the split initially occurs, the Assyrian Empire conquers Israel, takes them into exile. And then you have Judah in the south. They fared a little bit better because they had some good kings mixed in with their own wicked kings. So they lasted longer, but as time went on, they too would drift further and further from the Lord. They too were sent prophets repeatedly to come and warn And in due time, the Babylonian Empire, which had since conquered the Assyrians, now came and took over Jerusalem. They ransacked the temple, destroyed the temple, and in 586 B.C., the people of God from Judah were taken into exile as well. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are the final historical books of the Old Testament, And they contain the story of God's people coming out of exile back into the promised land. And so in that way, this is kind of a second Exodus story in the New Testament. You have the popular, kind of well-known Exodus story of Moses leading God's people out of Egypt. Now there's a second Exodus out of Babylonia back to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah are, uh, in their ancient manuscripts, their one book. I'd say today Nehemiah is the more popular, well-known, usually taught more out of Nehemiah, where Ezra, I think, gets more overlooked. But they're short books that span a hundred years. So we're starting the series today, by God's grace, in six weeks we'll finish, and that will span a hundred years of Israel's history. And I'll kind of unpack why that's important later on in the series, that this is not like one week, that this book spans a century. And so that's kind of the overview context of what we just read. And so here's what we're going to unpack in Ezra 1 this morning. That in order to persevere in this life and in this fallen world with a renewed hope, with all the difficulties and struggles there are, God's people first need a renewed vision. That's what we're going to see this morning, that before we can walk ahead with a renewed hope for God's plans in this world, we first need a renewed vision. And so if I can just slow down right there, brothers and sisters, and ask you that in the difficulties in life that you may be facing or those around you are facing, the kind of difficulty where if you're honest, you just feel kind of stuck, you're worn out, 
Maybe it's things happening to you, or maybe you're existing in a world, and all these conversations that are happening, and you're just exhausted, and you're just tired, and you're just, you're just, you're just weary. You're weary as a believer in a fallen world, and, and where you kind of, yes, I agree, I believe God, yes, I know where the future is, but I don't see how we're going to get there. Can I ask if you're tired? And is it possible in the state of things, in the struggle that you are currently having, could you use a renewed vision for your life? For the life of your family? For the life of your church? Your country? Your world? That is why, amongst other reasons, why we are in Ezra chapter 1. So we are going to see four elements of a renewed vision, four things that the people of God need to see if they're really going to live in this life with hope. Starting with number one, God's people need a renewed vision of God's faithfulness. A renewed vision of God's faithfulness. So back to verse one. There's a phrase in verse one which would have been an eye-opener for anybody in Israel when they heard it. And the line is that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Natural next question, well, what was the word spoken by Jeremiah? Jeremiah was one of those prophets I was talking about that were sent to the kingdoms to warn them. Uh, Jeremiah was in the 6th century uh, B.C., sent to the nation, the southern nation of Judah. He was to warn them of their unfaithfulness and the danger of not listening to him and listening instead to false prophets. And then Jeremiah would actually end up going into exile with everyone else, where he would die before returning. But before he did, in the midst of actually exile happening in real time, Jeremiah wrote these promises, incredible promises to Israel despite their unfaithfulness, including a promise that has a verse in it that I am sure the vast majority of you have heard a thousand times. It's in chapter 29, and I want to read verses 10 through 14. We'll have it up on the screen. This is what Jeremiah wrote. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, here it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." The verse, if you caught it, that normally everyone zeroes in on and kind of isolates is verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. That's a great verse. It's a verse we should repeat. It's a verse we should encourage one another with. But here's the thing. We very rarely hear verse 10 that came before it. That you're going to go to exile for 70 years first. This is not an overnight promise that's going to be fulfilled most who heard this verse at the time when it was written, including the man who wrote it, would die in exile and not see the fulfillment of it. But here's the point. 
This return to the promised land, this word that was spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, that now in Ezra 1 they said, the time has come. This return to the promised land is a spotlight on God's faithfulness, not Israel's obedience. Israel is returning after 70 years, not because they earned it. God didn't give them a test case and say, hit all these markers and then we'll welcome you back in. But Israel's coming back because God promised it. Not because they earned it, but because God promised it. And God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. When we forget God's promises, we lose our vision. When we forget God's promises, we end up walking around in the dark. When we forget God's promises, we rather try to focus our eyes on lesser things. And and then different manifestations start to come out when we realize that we are losing sight of God's promises and his faithfulness to that. What happens? Well, we start to get obsessed with our feelings. We dictate our lives by how we feel day to day as opposed to God's truth. We become, essentially, again, obsessed with just our lives. This whole world is just seen through our eyes, what affects us. That's what happens when we lose our vision. We are super focused on, what, are, are you where you want to be, so to speak? Are you living out the vision of your life? And we get struggle when we admit, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not who I want to be with. This is not what I signed up for. And what happens is our circumstances of our lives dictate how we see ourselves. So if things aren't going well with our children, then that views how we see ourselves and our identity as parents. If things are not going financially, that goes with how we see ourselves in terms of my value in a monetary form. What happens is our circumstances start to dictate the way I view myself. But when we get a renewed vision for God's faithfulness, we realize that how we see ourselves then dictates the way we see our circumstances. Did you catch that? It flips it. Without vision of God's faithfulness, our circumstances dictate the way we see ourselves. But with a renewed vision, how we see ourselves then dictates and controls how we view our circumstances. We need a renewed vision of God's faithfulness. That's number one. Number two, we need a renewed vision of God's providence. A renewed vision of God's providence. Back to verse one. I'll tell you, the first sentence of Ezra is just unbelievable. It sets the tone for the entire book. Consider the timeline that I covered briefly earlier. You had this gradual but depressing downfall of this, of the people of God that spans 400 years, all along the way. Again, God's sending prophets to warn them. This is what happens if you won't repent. This is where things are headed. They don't repent. And they go into exile, conquered by outside nations. And they spend 70 years in exile. And then how do things change? That leads up to Ezra chapter 1. How do things change? How does Israel go from becoming servants and slaves in Babylon to being freed in return? Was it by force? Did they have a rise up an army from within and say that we need to start a revolution and declare independence and fight our way out of here? Is that what they did? No. 
Was it by miraculous power, like the first exodus in Egypt, when, when God brought plagues down on Pharaoh through Moses? Did, did God overpower, overpower Cyrus like he did Pharaoh? No. Verse 1, we read that the Lord stirred up Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation. Cyrus woke up one day, after 70 years, said, it's time to go. Go home and rebuild your temple. How do you account for that? How can we account, how do we make sense of that? By providence. That behind the natural decisions and actions of man, there is a supernatural power using those decisions to bring about his bigger and better purposes. That's providence. Okay, so here's how it worked in this case. You have Cyrus, king of Persia. Did you notice the things that were repeated when I was reading chapter 1? It's Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus, king of Persia, right? Claiming this man to be the most powerful man of the most powerful empire in the ancient world. He had just a year before this taken over King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So you had the Assyrian Empire, that was the big empire. They took Israel into exile. They get taken over by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. That empire then goes and takes Judah into exile. And now the Persian Empire, the new kids on the block, overpower Nebuchadnezzar. And within a year of his rule, he sends the Jews home. Here's the thing. Cyrus did not decide to do this out of his goodwill. Cyrus was not a good guy. He was not a man of God. And history tells us that when he came into power, he sent several of these decrees out to ethnic nations that Babylon had conquered. And all the people were living as servants in the vast region of Babylon. So Cyrus thought to himself, I will have better allegiance from these people if I don't keep them here as servants, but I let them go home and serve their God. He's like, I don't care what God they serve. That doesn't matter to me. I just want their allegiance. And if they're going to be better behaved in their own land, worshiping their own God, more power to them, it will actually expand my power if I do that. That's why, if again, you heard in the repeat in chapter 1, it was always that their God is in Jerusalem. Go rebuild that house in Jerusalem because that's where their God lives. He's nowhere else. Cyrus made this decision from his own kind of worldly method to his madness. But we know that's not the entire reason why he did it. We know the power beneath the power because we read verse 1. The Lord stirred up Cyrus. The Lord had him make this decree. So how do you make sense of that? The answer, again, is providence. Providence can be this church word, kind of a bigger word that you kind of get here, maybe get tossed around here and there, but don't really know what it means. It's a word that we should never toss out. So hang with me here. There's, there's, there's two words that I would call them cousins, but they're not the same. And the two words are sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that he desires to do. Sovereignty says that God is the only being in the universe who can do all things without any constraint. God has no boss. God doesn't have to run by anything by anyone. He never needs permission or needs, never needs to be consulted or seek consult from another. Why? Because God is sovereign. Providence 
is God's sovereignty used for wise purposes. Providence is using that sovereignty for wise purposes. It is the wise and good application of that. And God in his providence stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to wake up and commission God's people who have been in exile for 70 years to go home. Providence is all over the scripture. But it's also all over our personal lives and most of the time we have no idea. Share a story of a woman named Joan Murray. Joan uh, lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. At 47 years old, Joan took a deep breath and jumped out of an airplane. She was enjoying her free fall through the air until she went to go pull the ripcord of her parachute. Nothing happened. Just about then, she said she had this extreme rush of adrenaline that she had never felt before, but Joan did not panic. Because she knew she had a backup parachute. So she was falling 120 miles per hour when she released her reserve chute, and it opened just fine, but she lost her bearings, and in her struggle, struggle to right herself, she partially deflated her secondary chute. And while the chute briefly slowed her descent, Joan hit the ground at 80 miles an hour. She struck the earth with a violent blow, shattering her right side. Hit the ground so hard, her fillings from her teeth flew out of her mouth. Joan was barely conscious, and as the body fails, the heart begins to fail because it cannot keep the trauma, the injury of the body alive. And just when it seemed that things could not get much worse, Joan realized she had fallen into a mound of fire ants on the ground who did not appreciate the disturbance to their lives. All told, Joan was stung 200 times before the paramedics arrived. The doctors were shocked that the nature of the trauma to her body, that she was still alive when she reached the hospital, and afterwards realized that the ants saved her life. Because the venom from the stings of the ants shocked her heart enough to keep it beating when it otherwise would have failed from the fall. And Joan would go on to make a recovery after 20 reconstructive surgeries. So here's the question to that story. What saved Joan's life? Was it fire ants or was it God? You know what the answer is? Yes. <laughs> That's providence. And the people of God were in exile, received a renewed vision for God's providence because the question of the text is, who caused them to go back? Was it Cyrus or was it God? The answer is yes. And the people got this renewed vision from that decree that the same God who holds all things together by the word of his power, as it says in Hebrews 1, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who chose to make himself known, nothing is too hard for him, no one is untouchable or unreachable for him. The most powerful man in the ancient world who did not know God, did not care for the Lord, was stirred by the Lord and became his mouthpiece overnight because God decided to do it. And just because Mary prayed it for it this morning that we go through, we pray our missions partners on our Sunday morning. Do you realize who she prayed for this morning? This was not planned. Gary and Elaine Allen, Christian Mission to the U.N., that they are called to form and cultivate relationships with world leaders, 
with international diplomats. Why? Why do they pour themselves out for that? Why do we partner with them financially and prayerfully? Because we believe in providence. And we are called to pray for our national and global leaders because their decisions impact millions of people, if not billions of people. And our prayer every single week is that through ministries like Gary and Elaine Allen, that God in his providence would stir them to make a decision that would accomplish and further his purposes that will not fail. Even if, especially if they have no idea that that's what they're doing. A renewed vision of God's providence. That's number two. Let's keep going. God's people, in order to persevere in hope, need a renewed vision of God's provision. A renewed vision of God's provision. After Cyrus gives this proclamation, the heads of the households were told in verse 5, everyone whose spirit God had stirred them up to go. By the way, there's providence again. And they go. But in another parallel to the Exodus account of Egypt a thousand years prior, God not only releases them from exile through the decree, but he gives them the provision and resources through Cyrus' decree to go rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 6, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. One of the biggest reasons why people struggle to do the things that they feel like God is calling them to do is because they can't see how it's going to get done. And because they can't see how it's going to get done, they struggle to move forward on doing what God has called them to. It's a massive hurdle that we face. And you can fill in the blanks here in your own lives as you've experienced it or maybe you're experiencing it right now. That I feel like God's calling me to do something, but I don't see how I could ever fill in the blank because I don't have fill in the blank. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the relational network. I don't have the skill or the support or the courage. I don't have what I need to do the things that God is stirring me to do. It is a massive hurdle. That because we can't see how, we never take a step forward. Church, what is needed is not a new stirring or a new calling, but a renewed vision of God's provision. I imagine while in exile, morale was pretty low amongst the people of God after 70 years. Put this in perspective, right? This is 2021. This is a, maybe you went into exile in 1951. And I won't do a raise of hands to see who has been born after 1951. But my guess is the majority of the people in Israel had no idea what the promised land was like. Never have a vision for it. Literally have never seen it. And so I bet morale was pretty low. And I bet even if some people did have a desire to go back to the ancient promised land, to rebuild a new temple... That even if they had a desire, that they had to pass this hurdle of how in the world is that going to happen? It got destroyed. Its vessels all got taken away. We have no money. We have no freedom. We have no control. It is impossible. And yet, upon receiving the news to head back, they are told they will be given all that they need to do to rebuild 
the house of the Lord. Again, they didn't earn it. They did not plunder the Persians. They did not trick them or steal from them. It was given to them. This one, if we're honest, in an area that we're in that is fairly affluent and consumeristic and unbelievably materialistic, when it comes to provision, we need to always be reminded we will be given what we need when we need it to be faithful to God's call. Now, there's a hard truth in here, but it's a vital truth. If you don't have it right now, it's because you don't need it right now. If you don't have it right now, it's because you don't need it right now. And if God is calling you to do something, he says, you be faithful and trust he will provide what you need when you need it. But you be faithful. Many of you might recall Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 16, after which he says this, quote, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you're in a place where you feel like God is stirring you to something, but you don't have the resources you need, the message is be faithful with what you have. Even if you think it's very little. Because if you be faithful with very little, you can trust that he will entrust you more when you need it. But if you are dishonest with what little you do have, you should never expect that God's going to give you more. Because if you can't be faithful with a little bit, how in the world are you going to be faithful with a lot? So we think about this often individually, but often, church, we need to think about this together. If we are lacking the provision or resources that we think we need, the response is not apathy, it's not grumbling, it's not anger. It's to be faithful with what we do have and trust that he will provide what we need where we're going. That's number three. We got one more, number four. In order to have a renewed hope, we first need to have a renewed vision of God's mission. A renewed vision of God's mission. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 2. For the sake of time, we won't be able to read it all, but we're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then jump down and read verses 64 through 68. Ezra 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came up with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banna, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Uh, this one's for free. If you're coming across names you don't know how to pronounce, say it with confidence and move on. <laughs> They'll never know. They'll never know. All right, now go down to verses 64 through 68. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. Chapter 2 provides us with all the names and numbers 
of those who were in the first wave to return to Jerusalem from Babylonia. I didn't skip over it just because, uh, like, I did it for the sake of time, but not because lists are unimportant in the Bible. That it is worthwhile reading through that, seeing the detail, the clarity, the planning behind the people heading back. But verses 1 and 2 contained 11 names, along with the 12th name, Shesh Bazar, that was mentioned at the end of chapter 1. That together, those 12 names represent the 12 tribes of Israel that will now go be reestablished in the land. You notice the name Zerubbabel in there. He will play a vital role in rebuilding the house of the Lord. We'll see him more next week. The funny thing about the book of Ezra is that the man Ezra does not enter the stage until chapter 7. For the next several chapters, it's all about Zerubbabel. But if you tie this all together with chapter 1, when you receive a renewed vision of God's providence and of God's faithfulness and of God's provision, it sets up the people of God to have a renewed vision of God's mission, and hear me, and act upon it. The simple but vital truth of chapter 2 is that God's people went. They went. They located themselves within God's mission. They didn't have their own mission that they hoped God came along for the ride with or on, but it's a renewed vision of his mission that he allows us to play a part in. And we should not assume that it was just easy for them to leave. Because isn't it true that all so often it can be difficult to pursue change even when we know the place we are currently in is not a good one. And it can be difficult to pursue change even when we know where we currently are is not a good place. Because in the flesh, we are settlers. We settle. We, we often lack the motivation to move because we've gotten used to the bad place we're located in. I don't know if anyone could relate to that. We might know change is needed, we might even see a vision that change could be possible, but we often don't pursue it. Even when change would be for the better, the daunting reality of having to change keeps us from moving as the Spirit beckons. I recently listened on Audible to the famous short novel, The Stranger. I don't know if any of you have read it. It's called The Stranger, written by French author Albert Camus in 1942. It's a book that captures kind of the existentialist mood of the day. And there's a lot of piercing kind of one-liners in the book. But I don't think this is a spoiler. Uh, the character is in prison at the end, and he's kind of just becoming, uh, submitting to his fate. And he admitted to the reader that he doesn't really care about getting out of prison. Because, quote, after a while, you could get used to anything. He didn't want to leave prison because after a while, you can get used to anything. And when we lose vision for God's mission that we are invited to play a part in, we will often choose to stay stuck, choose to stay weary, because after a while, you can get used to anything. But in the Spirit, we awaken from that slumber. In the Spirit, we awaken and we prepare to move even when we don't know what lies ahead. And they were prepared to head back and they never lost sight of their descent. We won't read it, but in verse 59, it says that there are certain men that, didn't, that forgot or lost track of what the household they were part of within the people of God. 
But the rest of the chapter is really a uh, kind of exposes the fact that the people, even in exile for 70 years, never lost sight of who they were. They never lose sight of what household they belonged to. They never lost sight of the fact that they were the distinct people of God. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both then and now, both in Israel and in the church today, we need to realize that when we are connected to God, we never lose sight that we are connected to one another in the family of God. Their names were remembered, and they needed one another on mission, just like we do today. That living on mission, not a solo sport. It's not done alone. And so what I'm about to say sounds bold, and I'm not saying it just because it sounds bold. I think it's true. Brothers and sisters, you are simply not living or following God's mission for your life if you are not aligned with a covenant community in a local church. If you are detached from the body of Christ, that's not a mission you're on, not God's mission. All throughout the New Testament, it's we, not me. So as we close... Why Ezra? Because it's a book that provides the people of God with a renewed vision that not only traces back to the promises of God, but looks forward to the fulfillment of God. And as we'll see when we get to the end of Ezra, this is a little bit of a spoiler, Ezra doesn't really end very strong. It's a strong start, it's a weak finish. This is not a finished product. And it's not going to go exactly as they expect it's partially going to be fulfilled. But that's the whole point. That where we stand in relation to Ezra has the benefit of seeing and knowing the real fulfillment that's coming in King Jesus. So hang, hang with me now for one more minute. We receive, Grace Church, a renewed vision of God's promises in King Jesus, who is the yes and amen to every promise in the Old Testament, including the greater and greatest promise, I think, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32 I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Grace Church, we need a renewed vision of God's providence in King Jesus who emptied himself and taking on the flesh of the form of a servant that took on death on the cross which happened because of the betrayal of a friend and yet in God's providence it was God's plan all along because this is by the means which we are saved. And when he was raised, Philippians 2 tells us the Father placed all things under the feet of King Jesus. We receive a renewed vision, Grace Church, of God's provision in King Jesus. As Paul writes, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, we receive, Grace Church, a renewed vision of God's mission in King Jesus who commissions his people to make disciples of all nations, empowered by the spirit he gives us, and through his spirit he will be with us always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, we are thankful for the book of Ezra, that it is infallible, inerrant, and profitable for teaching. Father, we are thankful even in a chapter like chapter 2 that just lists names and numbers, Lord, that it shows us that you know your people by name. And it gives us a preview into the book of Revelation when you say that all of your people are written in the book of life. And that book will be opened in the last days. 
And Father, give us a renewed vision for that hope that we will spend all of eternity with the people of God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And the Lord, allow that future hope to spur on courage today to do the things and move on the things that your spirit beckons us to move on. And let it be all for your glory. Let's name it your pray. Amen. Let me ask you to rise as we stand and sing in response to God's word and in preparation for the partaking of the Lord's Supper.